people first organizations will win in the future of work. Your only real asset is your people. We, we all, all want, want purpose-driven work. work. HR-led organization is I'm sorry, but leaders don't lead empty desks and empty shop floors. Welcome to the People Strategy Leaders Show. I'm your host, Sri Chalapa, founder and president of Engagedly, and a serial entrepreneur in technology, films, and music. This is where we talk to people leaders, business strategists, and organizational savants about leading in the time of change. What is working, what is not working, and more importantly, what we should be thinking about. Stick around to the end of the show. We will reveal how you can be our next guest. And now, let's engage. Hi, welcome back. This is Sri Chalapa with People Strategy Leaders Podcast. And today I have Amy Warninger here, who is amazing at uh, uh, talking about how can companies lead uh, with people from within and lead at any level is her organization. She consults with a lot of companies. She has her own podcast as well. Um, just a quick introduction about Amy. Um, Amy Wanninger works with companies that promote from within to help them keep their employees engaged. And Amy is also the author of seven books, including Network Beyond Bias, Making Diversity a Competitive Advantage to Your Career. Well, welcome to the show, Amy. It's great to have you. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, Amy, as we were chatting earlier, you know, one of the things you mentioned is that you are a big proponent of promoting from within, which, by the way, I'm a huge fan of that as well. Uh, so tell me a little bit about, bit about what is your uh, overall uh, bias towards that and why do you like to work with companies that actually do that? Thank you for asking. I think this is one of the most important ways that companies can develop future leaders is by giving them the tools and the skills that they need and then the responsibilities that they that go along with those tools and skills so that they can actually build their talent pipeline from within pull people in from the outside at lower levels and just keep rising the tide within the company. This helps with succession planning. It helps with employee retention. It helps, you know, with keeping your best talent for the long term. The reason I love working with these companies is because in a lot of roles or a lot of companies, they have technical roles, tech companies, financial services companies, even healthcare companies that promote from within. And typically what they do is they promote the people who are the best at their current job. Right. So you have really technical people that then get put into leadership roles and their jobs change and the focus of the work changes. And if they don't have the right skills to make that transition or the right tools, it can, it can wreak havoc on teams. I know this because I was once a technical employee who got promoted into a manager role without the tools or the skills to do the job. And um, let's just say it didn't go well for me the first time around. So I learned um, and now I share those lessons with others. You know, one of the challenges I see when companies are looking at promoting from within is that a, a perception. So if you have four people in the same role, now you got to promote one of them. That's going to that's gonna cause team dynamic where there might be somebody who's not happy about this, like some one of their peers, now their manager. Um, and the second issue is that they are not, you know, they've never been in a management role. So somebody has to coach them to be a manager. And if I am this, you know, if I'm a startup and I'm the CEO, president, or, a, or even a VP, that's an extra uplift for me in addition to everything else I'm doing in my life at that, at that, uh, at that job. 
So which is why it's convenient, I would say, and I'm using the word convenient here on purpose for organizations to go and hire somebody senior from outside and say, here's your new manager. Uh, now you guys work with work with this person. Um, how do you respond to this? And now these are very valid challenges, by the way. I'm not saying, I'm not dismissing this uh, challenge that these companies have, especially startups where you're, you know, if you're a CEO, you're working, you're wearing multiple hats. Now they have to deal with, you know, the dynamics of team, maybe some politicking that might happen because of that or disengagement that might happen because of that. And then the B, having to invest their own time to coaching and all of that. So what would you say to those companies who are like, oh, should I invest my time and energy in doing that or should I just find somebody outside and and so that I don't have to, you know, go through that uh, challenge? Well, I think that depends on a lot of things. It depends on the size of the company, the trajectory of the company, the maturity of the company, right? If you're a startup and you've just gotten funding and you need to hire 100 people, you can't promote 100 people from within because you don't have them. Right. You probably don't have the, the people in place that have those manager skills. So I think a lot of this comes down to where are you in your maturity as a company and what does your internal talent pool look like? You know, one of the things, one of the mistakes that I think companies make, even small companies, is they don't invest in training and development of their frontline employees early enough or often enough. And then when a position becomes available, when they have a new management role open, or they realize they need to expand the team and create another level of management, they don't have anybody ready that can take on that role internally. And that's a real shame, right? Because you're paying a premium to pull somebody out of another company to come work for yours. And what will happen eventually is somebody else will pay a premium to take your good employees away from you too. Right. So I guess if I hear you right, you're saying basically companies need to be, and management in, in specifically needs to be, uh, needs to have enough foresight and plan ahead instead of reacting to the movement and saying, oh, I need a manager next month what do I do now instead of saying I might need a manager in the future? I don't know when, might be six months, might be a year, might be three months, but let me prepare my team or somebody from the team who has the potential to lead people uh, because not every individual performer is a leader or a manager and many of them actually don't want to be. And we have, you know, uh, it's the same situation in our organization as well is to prepare in advance with the foresight to say that's our, as a strategic talent, uh, management process, we are going to focus on building leaders for the future, even if there is no immediate need for that. Is that correct? Absolutely. And the good news is executives already live in the future, right? They're already planning for next quarter, next year, five years out, three years out. So just adding that people strategy into what they're already planning is an important component. Sadly, it's one that gets missed a lot. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about engagement now. So obviously, HR leaders, and CEOs are even in the in, even as the what the market is today, where retention is probably is I would say still important. But there are companies letting people go. But I still believe that employee engagement is still a very important aspect because as you're letting maybe some people go, or for whatever reason, you still need the rest of the organizations to be highly engaged. So what 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 are some other strategies and things uh, that the management can do to to do that? Yeah, so I have a, I use a program where I teach leaders some different skills. Um, most engagement from employees comes from their relationship with their immediate manager, their immediate supervisor. So we attract people to our companies with our benefits and our salaries and our flashy brands and our marketing campaigns. 
but we keep people because of the relationship that they have with their immediate manager. So training those managers to build relationships with people, not just focus on the work, but focus on the people doing the work is so important. So some of the skills that I recommend that managers have, and even leaders who don't have management titles, because Sri, you've probably worked in enough places to know that there are the people who have the, the leadership title, and then there are the people in the teams that other people look to as leaders, right. even if they don't have the title. So if, if both groups, the leaders with and without titles, know how to respond effectively to change, know how to build strong internal and external networks, know how to identify the strengths of everybody on the team and leverage those strengths for the good of the team, just starting there, they'll have a leg up over every other team. Because most leaders, whether they have the title or not, are not very good at those three things. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things I, I have seen a lot, uh, as especially in this, you know, I, I work with a lot of startups and I, I have, I follow a lot of startups, you know, a lot of startups get funding and they suddenly double or triple their team in a year, um, which is a big uplift from a culture, organizational structure, effectiveness perspective. And in the process, what happens is they cannot always hire from outside. You know, there's just not enough talent that is readily available. So they will promote from within, even if they didn't necessarily plan on it or prepare for it, as you said. Um, so we, you know, a lot of individual high performers get promoted to managers. So talk us through the journey of, as a first-time manager, especially somebody who maybe not had the, uh, the training or the coaching to be a, a manager, what are some of the things that an organization should do for this first-time manager? And what are the first-time managers should be doing in the first, let's say, three to four months? Sure. So I think before, before companies promote is the time to train. And again, this goes back to planning, right? You wouldn't launch a new product without testing it. You probably shouldn't launch a new manager without testing them or without at least you know preparing them for the role. So having some basic training up front, um, simple things like, you know, human resources policies or hiring laws, right? Not letting your employees who are new managers go ask questions in the hiring process that could open you to lawsuits. Those sorts of things are really critical, especially if you're growing quickly, because sometimes that gets lost in the shuffle and we forget that people don't know they can't ask questions, you know, different questions in different places in the world. Um, I think for you know, anyone who's preparing somebody or, or mentoring or coaching somebody into their first leadership role, it's important to remind that individual that their relationship with their team is going to necessarily change. They're no longer going to have a peer relationship with the people that they used to have a peer relationship with. And that can be really difficult. It can be very lonely. It can also cause mistrust. And, you know, you mentioned before, some people may not be very happy that their friend got promoted over them. This can cause a lot of conflict in teams. So making sure that everybody on the team has good conflict resolution skills, is good at giving and receiving feedback is very important, but also reminding new managers, new leaders with the title, right, that they're going to have access to information and insights and a lot of times sensitive information that they can't distribute, they can't share, um, and they need to keep that information confidential. Some people don't know that going into a leadership role, and they think that transparency is really important, and it is, but there are limits to what managers can be transparent about. Yeah. 
Yeah. And one of the things that I, uh, you know, I talk about um, and I, I, I also, we, we also actively practice is as a manager, the first thing you do um, is to obviously establish clear expectations with the team on both sides, right? What do you expect from me as a manager? What I expect you from an, as an employee? Now, whether or not they are peers, you know, obviously there's a different dynamic if you're peers, is to start doing check-ins and do one-on-ones every week. You know, even if there's not a lot to talk about, it's important for first-time managers, and I would say any manager, to do a weekly check-in. And I was surprised to hear that how many managers actually don't do that. Um, and we thought it was standard because every one of our managers in our organization, including myself, we all do weekly check-ins and one-on-ones. Occasionally, you know, because of vacation or if there's something really, you know, a critical coming up, we may miss a week or two here and there. But it's not, it's an exception, not the rule, you know. So what are your thoughts around, you know, some of these practices that the managers should do uh, especially if you're a first-time manager? I think the weekly check-ins and one-on-ones are absolutely critical. Um, I think the reason that people don't always do them as new managers is because that behavior was not modeled for them by their previous manager or by their current leader. And so we need to be very careful when you talk about growing and maintaining culture and putting guardrails around. The executives, the senior leaders need to remember that they're setting the tone for all of the expectations around cultures and norms in the company. And so if they're not doing it, the people who report to them probably aren't doing it either. Yeah. I think it's, oh, I think it's really important for new managers too, to sit down with every member of the team, like you said, and get expectations clear. But the first thing they need to do is go to their own leadership team and say, what are the expectations of me in this role? And how has my role changed? And how have the expectations changed for me? Because a lot of times that's not clear. And so then they don't have something, they don't have a, a framework to use when they go back to their own team to have those conversations. Yeah. And especially if they're a peer, then how do you give critical feedback? Because now you're like, man, I was, you know, this person having a beer and, you know, having a, a, a more casual conversations with this person. Now I got to give this person critical feedback and tell them, you know, this is I, what I expect, but here's what is reality and here's the behavior change I want. So what would you recommend in terms of how do you, you know, get yourself into, into that position where you can somewhat comfortably have that relationship with your employee? So I use a really structured approach to feedback. This is what I teach, that if you always use the same structure, you'll keep yourself out of trouble. And good feedback starts with, number one, having empathy for the person that you're giving the feedback to, but also making it rooted in wanting to help them be more effective, wanting what's best for them. It's not, critical feedback is not just kicking down when things go wrong. Right. Leaders need to take most of the blame for anything that goes wrong and need to share most of the credit with anything that goes right. And so when we're talking about feedback, using a very structured approach will help if they can identify the specific behaviors that the person's engaging in that are not as effective or on the flip side that are very effective and be specific about those behaviors, the impact those behaviors are having and what they can do differently or what they should double down on if it's effective. All of those things, all of those pieces are really important because if you come to me and you say, you know, Amy, you just don't show up the way I want you to show up. I don't know what to do with that information. 
Exactly. Right. That doesn't give me anything to go on. And it, and I might walk away with a complete misunderstanding of what you're telling me. But if you say, Amy, when you come into the meeting and you don't bring a notebook and you have nothing to take notes with, it looks like you're not absorbing information and you're not taking ownership of action items that are assigned to you in the meeting. When you come to the meeting, can you bring a notebook? That's very clear feedback. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so is there a name for this framework? Uh, or is it? Yeah, I call it the bite method. So the, the course that I teach on this is called serving up feedback one bite at a time. And so it's B for behavior, I for impact, T for tomorrow, and E for encouragement or enforcement. So depending on, you know, where you are with the person and your uh, management of them, right? You can either say, you know, I know you can do this. I've seen you do it before. Or I know that this is not, a, you know, I know that this is a, a big ask, but I really think that you can step up. Um, but if the person's let you down a couple of times and you're having this feedback over and over, now it's time to move to an E that means enforcement. Here are the consequences if the behavior doesn't change. But always make it about the behavior, not about the person. Right, right. And I think that's a big mistake. Um, instead of saying you didn't do it, is to really focus on this is what I observed and this is the impact, you know, and or if, if it is more at a personal level, you could talk about this is why I made me feel instead of this is what you did that that you know that is wrong you know and that's uh so i think that's very important because we all have a self-preservation mechanism in our programmed in our dna that makes us react when somebody gives us a feedback yeah can uh, i add just one thing to this feedback notion too because i think what happens a lot of times in teams is the example that i use a lot is if you had five different potted plants in your office and you only watered and fed one of them, only one of them would thrive and grow. And a lot of times managers use feedback like the water for the plant, right? If they've got five people on their team, they're really good at giving one person feedback or two people feedback, but they're not intentional about making sure that that feedback is evenly distributed across the team, which means only one or two people are gonna grow, not the whole team. Yeah, I think it might be also because that one person is the one, there are two reasons, right? One person is the one who's actually maybe underperforming the most. So maybe they are spending most of the energy giving feedback to that person. Or I've also seen this where that's one person is good at taking feedback and, and actually makes a change. So they're like, oh, there's actually value in giving this person feedback. This other person, I, every time I give feedback, we get into an argument. So, you know, it could be either one of those uh, issues, I, I guess. I don't know if that's uh, something you've seen. Yeah, another thing I see is that uh, managers are typically more likely to give the person feedback who is the most like them, the person they already feel the most comfortable with. Mm. And so we see, you know, I talk about feedback a lot being an equity activity. Um, a lot of times male managers won't give their female employees good feedback. And by good feedback, I mean either positive feedback that's specific or constructive feedback that's specific. Um, and the reason they don't do that is because a lot of times male managers are afraid that their female employees will cry if they hear something they don't want to hear. And, you know, my question back is always, okay, well, do you want to avoid them crying or do you want to avoid them making the same mistake again? Right. Because one of those two things, you know, you got to pick. Yeah. Yeah. That is true. That is true. And also they're, uh, 
there there is that gender issue as well. Now let's talk about female managers. Though I mean, do you see any difference when there's a female manager giving feedback to male managers versus female managers giving feedback to another female individual? So I haven't seen as much data on that scenario, but I will say that just observational, you know, just anecdotally, typically it's the most feedback, positive and constructive, goes to the people who are the most like us because of the people that we trust the most to use that feedback in a, in a constructive way. So, so you're saying it's the same behavior. It's so the it's same behavior. Female to female and male to male has, mm-hmm. exhibit the same behavior. And would you say that's true also for if your ethnicity and race as well? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. What, what do you think about, uh, you know, one of the things is, uh, and I don't know uh, if this is something you've encountered, is there uh, any fear of men giving feedback to f- women because of uh, some issues of harassment or that might come back on them, for, for example? Have you seen that at all? Or is that an excuse? Have you seen people use? So I've heard, you know, kind of in the wake of the Me Too movement, I've heard uh, men say, well, I just won't mentor women anymore because I don't want to, you know, open myself up to any accusations. And I, so for the, to that, right, the, my question is, so if I told you I couldn't work with half the people in your organization, why would you hire me? How effective could I be if I said I wouldn't, I would not engage, I would not work with or support half the people in the org? And the answer, that's preposterous, right? So right. I think that for people who really are, I, I, I see that as sort of an insincere backlash um, against women who have stood up for themselves in the past. I see it. I don't think that's a good faith argument in most cases. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of corollaries in a lot of different contexts that that I feel like are the same, right? Like, oh, well, we can't say anything because we'll get canceled. No, it's okay for people to say, I don't like the way that made me feel. I don't like the way I'm being treated and the way I'm being treated needs to change. And so typically, you know, typically this notion of cancel culture or this notion of, you know, being exposed to, uh, you know, malicious, untrue accusations is typically stems from a fear around losing either positional power or um, societal power within an identity. And it's not, I, I don't always think that these things are rooted in, in good faith efforts to be better mm-hmm. managers. That is true. And I do think, uh, you know, people like, like ourselves, we are more comfortable giving feedback. That is absolutely true because I've seen, and I might be myself have been uh, uh, you know, a practitioner of that, where you can be, you can feel like you can be yourself. And let's say you're using cuss words or you want to actually be angry with somebody like you because you feel like I can still connect and not be, not really torment that person by doing that. But if you're doing that to a different individual, whether it's a, especially if it's a, there's a gender difference between the two, you may have to be a little bit more tactful on how you present your. Uh, feedback and your uh, coaching tips or whatever that you're talking about. So there is that, which actually means that you have to do some extra work, you know, and that's probably what it is. It's more laziness in in, in your part. Um, and I, and it's true, right? I mean, as a, as a person of Indian origin, I can talk a certain way with Indian colleagues, whether they are here or whether they're in India or somewhere else versus a, you know, African-American female here or, or a white female or, or even uh, a, of somebody else from a different ethnicity, right? I have to 
adjust my mindset to some extent and and I realize it's it's work so I have to actually practice how I'm going to say this still start to get the same results yes absolutely and I would add that you know no matter who we're talking to we want to be careful not to give feedback especially constructive feedback when we're angry or upset or you know, as my my grandma used to say, when your blood is up, right? If you're feeling very emotional, it's probably not the right time to have that conversation. You need to start with your own, you know, ground yourself in your own um, intentions and, you know, get yourself in a place where you're emotionally connected to what you want to do and not just reacting, right? We all have, or well, I do at least, have those moments where I want to throw a tantrum and scream, um, but I realized that, you know, that doesn't make me look very good. And it certainly doesn't do anything uh, positive for the people around me, no matter who they are. Yeah. Well, that's very interesting, uh, Amy. So uh, do you have any example of, you know, going back to promoting from within, building new management team, any example of something that's worked really well in your in your practice, working with different you know management teams? Um, maybe walk us through how that worked and what was some of the key uh, factors that led to success? Sure. So one of the things that I did when I was a manager in, in a big corporation, several big companies, um, as a team lead, as a manager, director, is I would go through um, with my teams, the Clifton Strength or Gallup Strength Finder assessment and walk through, you know, have everybody take the assessment and then do debriefs with the team on what everybody's strengths were. And now that I'm outside of that world and I'm an independent you know, practitioner and consultant, I do a lot of that work as well with teams and companies, because I think that when we we have different strengths, we have different talents, we see the world through different lenses, we see our work through different lenses, it can be really easy to miscommunicate or to think that somebody's being difficult or they're being argumentative or they're not as smart as I am because they don't see it the way I see it. And when we get down to, well, I see it this way because this is the way I view the world and someone else sees something differently. And I'll just give you a quick example, um, a personal example, right? I am, um, you know, I'm very strong in things like intellection and input and learning. So I collect information from all over the place and I read everything I can and I synthesize information. And then somewhere on the back end, I put things together that don't go together, right? I mush them into something new and create ideas around that. I get very excited talking about the ideas, and kind of forming those ideas with other people, right? Um, my husband, on the other hand, is very high in um, responsibility and consistency. And he doesn't say anything until he's 110% sure that he means it. And so when we're trying to work through a process, right? We're trying to come to a decision about something like, where are we going to take vacation or when? I can get very frustrated with him because I don't feel like he's giving me any information. And he can get very frustrated with me because he thinks I don't mean anything I say. And really, I'm just working it out verbally, and he's just processing internally. Right. And so when we, and so you think about now, that's two people trying to make a very small decision, Right. But when you have large teams and you're trying to manage, you know, 100 priorities and everything is on fire. And by the way, we got to hire 10 people and everybody's coming at all these decisions from different perspectives and using different processes to get there. That can create a lot of conflict. So if we know how each person on the team approaches the problem, 
or how each person on a team communicates, you know, their perspectives and really appreciate what they bring that's unique to the group, we can start to leverage that in a way that makes them feel valued, makes them feel more engaged. We get what we need. They get what they need. Everybody feels full spiritually or, you know, from a, a value perspective, right? And then we all move forward better together. And so one of the best team building activities I can recommend to people is that they go through the Strength Finder or Clifton Strength, it's now called, uh, assessment and report to kind of work through that. Oh, nice. So uh, tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, what your uh, organization does and how people can, uh, you know, reach you and what type of uh, and assignments do you typically like to work on? Sure. So Lead at Any Level offers really three things. We do assessments. That's culture or individual assessments. So like the Strength Finder, but we also have some other organizational tools. We do advisory services. And that might be something around, you know, an incident, like there was a flare up in the organization and we need to figure out what went wrong and how to fix it. Or it may be, you know, we're trying to build a team and we need to know what policies and, and procedures do we need to have in place to do this work effectively. Um, so a lot of culture work in the advisory services category. And then finally training on helping reclusive nerds become inclusive leaders. So really how do you get your team, your team members to become team leaders to become effective managers? Excellent. Well, thanks a lot, Amy. Uh, it's been a pleasure to have you. And uh, how can people uh, reach you? The easiest place to find me is at leadatanylevel.com. And um, you can find me on LinkedIn. You'll get sick of me on LinkedIn because I post just about every day uh, some sort of, you know, essential skill for inclusive leadership. But my name is a little hard to spell. So if you start at leadatanylevel.com, find me anywhere from there. Thanks a lot, Amy. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Sri. Sri Chalapa here. Thank you so much for listening to the People Strategy Leaders Podcast. If you are a successful leader, or a people strategist who would like to be on this program, please visit engagedly.com slash people strategy leaders podcast. If you got something out of this interview, would you share this episode on social media? If you know someone that would be a great guest, tag them on social media to let them know about the show and include the hashtag people strategy leaders. I love seeing your posts and guest suggestions. We are regularly putting out new episodes and content. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings, and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to me and my team. Want to know more? Follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter at Sri Chalapa. Thanks for listening. We will see you next time. And thank you to Patrick Ramsey, sound engineer at Kalinga Production Studios, for recording and mixing this show.